Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of the Battleground podcast with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. With the US Congress still dragging its feet over Biden's $61 billion aid package for Ukraine, and one US official warning that Ukraine might lose the war by the summer if aid from America and the EU comes to an end, it must have been cheering for Kyiv to hear an announcement by David Cameron, the British Foreign Secretary, on Thursday in Paris that Britain and France would back Ukraine for as long as it takes. Also in this episode, we'll be looking at what's going on in Gaza, where the Israeli army are making slow progress in their stated mission to eradicate Hamas, while at the same time attracting growing criticism from its old allies at the number of civilians they're killing. Returning to Ukraine, the most immediate practical example of Britain's continued support is a promise to use Royal Navy expertise to help control the Black Sea as part of a 10-year security pact to be signed in the coming weeks. The anticipated deal comes after G7 countries signed a declaration on long-term protection for Ukraine in lieu of NATO membership on the sidelines of a summit of the military alliance's leaders in Vilnius, Lithuania earlier this year. Around 30 countries, as well as the EU, are now negotiating individual long-term security pledges for Ukraine using the framework agreed in July. On the battlefield, meanwhile, Ukraine's continued operations on the east, that's the left bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast. Uh, But the conditions there are pretty difficult. According to a series of interviews with Ukrainian military personnel who are operating there, they've been carrying out drone strikes, which have been uh, suppressing Russian long-range artillery in the area, which was obviously an immediate objective uh, of creating bridgeheads, removing the threat from those. And this development, according to the Institute for the Study of War, may allow Ukrainian forces to operate more freely in rear areas in West Bank, Kherson, Oblast. It adds the withdrawal of tube artillery beyond 25 kilometers from the West Bank and the suppression of long-range Russian artillery would remove consistent threats to populated areas on the West Bank and allow Ukrainian forces to more securely launch operations across the Dnipro River. So it seems that foothold they've got uh, is getting stronger and steadier all the time. Less happy news for Ukraine is President Zelensky's confession in a rare question-and-answer press conference that the Ukrainian army has asked for an extra 450,000 to 500,000 people to be mobilised to fight the war, but he had yet to be convinced that such a huge call-up was necessary. There's also been an acknowledgement by one senior Ukrainian officer, Brigadier Oleksandr Tarnovsky, who commands the Tavrisk group of forces, that troops along the entire front line were facing ammunition shortages and had been forced to downsize some operations because of a decrease in foreign assistance. He added, however, that Russian forces are also having issues with artillery ammunition. That's as may be, but the Russians are still on the attack near Kupiansk, Bakhmut, Avdivka, and in western Zaporizhia, Oblast, that their advances have been extremely modest and their casualties, as ever, very high. We'll discuss the significance of all of this and give you the latest from Gaza. But first, Patrick, tell us more about David Cameron's declaration of support for Ukraine. Well, as you just said, Saul, in the moment, uh, Ukraine needs every bit of good news that it can get. And this came in the form of a statement from uh, David Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, who was in Paris this week for talks with his French counterpart, uh, Catherine Colonna. He said, Britain and France have been staunch supporters of Ukraine, and we will continue to be for as long as it takes. I have no doubt that we can make sure Putin loses, and it, it is essential that he does 
lose. Well, those are that's the message that's been coming out of number 10 ever since Boris Johnson, hasn't it? It's good to see this being sustained. And it was actually backed up by some uh, actual, not just words, but some deeds. Britain's promising to use its naval expertise to support uh, Ukraine as part of a 10-year security pact. This is a memorandum of understanding which pledges to keep Kiev in the fight against Russia by providing military support focused on naval assets, which is obviously a big part of the picture. We haven't really been talking about it much, but you know that Black Sea piece is very much part of the overall strategy. Uh, and on top of that, there's financial aid and intelligence sharing. It also contains promises of a post-war security guarantee uh, to ward off any future Russian aggression including stepping up weapons deliveries and reimposing sanctions. Now, last year, Britain started providing Ukraine with ship-based brimstone missiles, which uh, Russian war blockers claim to have been used in successful attacks on air defense systems in occupied Crimea. I suppose this question, Saul, given the fact that Congress is still blocking more U.S. aid and Viktor Orban who's always been the uh, you know the wild card in the EU pack, uh, the Hungarian leader, is doing the same thing in Europe. Is this going to be too little too late? I mean, a theme that has been playing ever since the beginning of this war, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's worrying a lot of Western commentators, but they do, uh, you know, move from optimism to pessimism, you know, with the weather in effect. Um, I haven't shifted too far, fortunately, Patrick. I don't think it's going to mean that the taps are turned off. I, I heard encouraging noises this week from a former senior American defense official who thinks the opposite, that he, that the taps actually will be turned on again soon once senior Republicans in Congress have got the concessions that they're asking for about tougher control over the U.S.'s southern border. Now, this seemed to be confirmed this week by U.S. Senate leaders who said the aid deal is likely to come together soon, though possibly not until January. According to Republican minority leader Mitch McConnell, those involved in the negotiations were making, and I quote, slow and steady progress. And while the EU is still dragging its feet, thanks to Orban, individual countries can still support Ukraine and are doing so. In his weekend briefing, this was fascinating, the friend of the podcast, Phil O'Brien, professor up at uh, St. Andrews University, pointed out that together, the eight largest European contributors to Ukraine aid, Germany is first and Britain is number two, just in case you're interested. France, oddly enough, is not in that eight, but those eight have already given more military aid to Ukraine. That's $44 billion worth than America has. It's given just under $44 billion. And if you add in non-military aid, the disparity is two to one in those European countries' favours. Moreover, if you consider aid as a percentage of GDP, every EU state, as well as Norway and the UK, have given a greater share of their national wealth than the US to help Ukraine. This is a really important statistic, and I don't think many people know about this because it gives the lie to the American claim that it alone is paying for the defence of Europe. So the taps won't be turned off soon, whatever the do merchants claim. And in this context, it's important to see comments like the US official warning that Ukraine might lose the war by summer if military aid doesn't resume as an attempt to shock Republican congressmen into passing the $61 billion aid package for Ukraine, which, as I've already said, looks like it's going to come through in the not-too-distant future. And even if those American weapons didn't materialize, Ukraine is not going to lose the war because it has the support of many other nations. On the other hand, it's probably fair to say it can't win the war either without American support.
I mentioned the Zelensky press conference, Patrick. What did you make of it? Well, that's, that's fascinating, isn't it? So, because it does kind of um, shift you know, your perspective, one's perspective on the whole thing. I mean, the Americans have been very vocal in saying, why do we always have to do all the heavy lifting? But those figures do actually tell a slightly different story, don't they? I do take your point about Europe can't do it on its own, certainly not to the level that it's going to deliver overwhelming force that's going to win the war for Ukraine. But as you say, it also means that they, they're not necessarily going to lose it. I mean, these definitions of win or lose are something we ought to talk about at some point because they're very kind of fluid and vague, aren't they, at this point? Anyway, getting back to Zelensky, the press conference, well, it is interesting that he kind of lays it out there that this is what he's being asked to do. This is what he's reluctant to do. They clearly do have a fundamental problem with manpower. And uh, I think this is probably coming from uh, Zeluzhny, isn't it? General Zeluzhny, the the overall commander of, of Ukrainian forces. Zelensky saying this is going to cost an extra £10.5 billion. And that's money they don't have at the moment. And it is another indication of the fact that there's a sort of divergence in messaging, really, from the military and the political leadership. You know, Zeluzhny's got out of his box again. You know, he's, he is getting a bit of a reputation for free speaking at a time when it's probably not very, uh, very sensible to do it. But uh, he was quoted this week as saying that the regional recruitment chiefs should not have been sacked by Zelensky as they were doing a professional job. Now, you long-time listeners may remember this goes back to the summer when there was a, uh, a scandal, really, about um, apparently sort of malpractice in the in the whole business of of uh, calling people up, the whole business of actually getting men into into uniform, into into battle. And there was a strong suggestion there was corruption involved there. So uh, Zelensky is supporting his guys, he's backing up his guys, and uh, Zelensky putting him at odds with Zelensky, who clearly felt he had no option but to sack these regional uh, recruit recruitment chiefs. But just to back up your point, uh, Zelensky said he was happy with his conversations with the US and the EU and that continued support for the former, that's the US, would, would happen very soon. And he also confirmed that more Patriot air defense systems would be coming and there'd be uh, no, that's an important point, no Ukrainian elections while the war was still being fought. Well, those Patriot missiles are very, very welcome, and they, especially with winter on its way, and, you know, haven't seen this yet, but there's um, no reason not to suspect that the Russians might revert to trying to um, freeze the civilian population out by hitting infrastructure and power stations and so forth, and the Patriots would certainly be a very welcome shield against. Moving on to Gaza, Zelensky admitted that um, it was having a negative impact on Ukraine, and he was quoted as saying, some countries are starting to balance who should they prioritize support for, either Ukraine or Israel. And that's obviously not to Ukraine's advantage. On that subject, uh, switching over to Gaza, so Israel seems to be making pretty slow progress in its mission to wipe out Hamas, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would, Patrick. But before I move on to Gaza, just a quick point about Zeluzhny. I mean, it really is quite shocking, actually, for him to be making the sort of comment that he's just made. Now, you may say, well, he's just speaking truth to power, so to speak, or at least the political leadership. But if, if you think of the context of what he's really saying, which is that a the political decision to sack those recruitment chiefs, and there was, or at least there's been strong indications of corruption, which we covered in the podcast before, that they should have been left in their jobs because in some way it was his you know, role as commander-in-chief of the armed forces to do the sacking is a very, very dangerous comment to make, in my view. I mean, his 
job really is to serve his political masters. And he's moving into the area of politics here. Possibly his head has been turned by the opinion polls, which say that they are more more than 80% in, in support of him, whereas Zelensky's have dropped to about 60%. But that is no excuse, in my view, for him getting involved in politics. And frankly, if, if a Russian general was to speak this way, he would not only be sacked immediately, he might find himself led away uh, to an execution chamber somewhere. So very dangerous comments by Zeluzhny, out of order, in my view. He can, of course, express them privately. But to say them publicly and, and therefore emphasize the fracture in the relationship with the political leadership is is not good business at all. Moving back to Hamas, yes, as you say, Patrick, they're making slow, steady progress. They're certainly making slow progress, but it really wasn't an unwinnable war from the start, I suspect, uh, when you look at the objectives of the Israelis, which are to wipe out Hamas in its entirety. And in the meantime, of course, they are losing international support slowly but surely. A really interesting vocal critic this week was someone who's no longer in office, and that's Ben Wallace, the former British Defence Secretary, who himself, of course, is a former soldier. He described what Israel was doing in Gaza as a killing rage and said its conduct posed a threat to its moral and legal authority and is likely to fuel the conflict for 50 years. These were not off-the-cuff remarks, but were delivered in an article in the Daily Telegraph. And he wrote, going after Hamas is legitimate, obliterating vast swathes of Gaza is not. Using disproportionate force is legal, collective punishment and the forced movement of civilians is not. Why does all this matter? Well, Ben Wallace is a senior conservative and the conservatives, like the Republicans in America, have been pretty supportive of and uncritical of Israel historically. The conservative foreign secretary, David Cameron, has also taken aim at Israel in recent days, though in more moderate language, saying Israeli conduct was completely unacceptable. He has in the past described Gaza as an open-air prison, which is a point of contention we'll deal with in our own questions, actually, because someone's made an interesting point about that. And that inevitably caused a bit of a stir. Well, that's just in Britain, which um, ultimately, let's face it, doesn't matter that much. But in Washington, there are tensions reported in the White House between um, the official policy towards Israel, which is to say nothing too harsh in public, about what they're doing, but uh, to express their disquiet behind the scenes. And there's a faction there who want to take a more vocal line, um, who think this is uh, this is being too, going too easy on Israel, uh, and to threaten, this is inside the White House, uh, and to threaten an at least limited withdrawal of military support in an effort to rein the IDF in. That hasn't happened so far, in, in fact, just looking at what's going on at the moment in the United Nations, uh, the US is is holding up a, a UN Security Council resolution calling for a sustainable cessation of hostilities and threatening to use its veto if the wording isn't toned down. But Biden did give some idea of his thinking uh, at a fundraising event in Washington the other day. He's famous for making these sort of off-the-cuff remarks. And while he was talking uh, to the uh, quite small gathering, he was inclined to blame not Netanyahu, the um, Israeli prime minister, but his ultra right wing coalition partners for the tactics in the war against Hamas. And he warned that Israel might lose international support for what even he is now calling indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. He went on to say Netanyahu is a good friend, but I think he has to change And this government in Israel is making it very difficult for him to move. 
And he, re he was referring I think, specifically to the National Security Minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's a member of the far-right ultranationalist Otsma Yehudit party. And Biden said, uh, Ben-Gavir and company and the new folks, I suppose the other coalition partners, he means by that, don't want anything remotely approaching a two-state solution. Now, this is the new reality, isn't it, Saul? People, are, Israeli officials are now saying openly that this is the case, that the two-state solution is dead. Yeah, and it's it's quite alarming, actually. I mean, the Israeli ambassador to the UK said this in an in interview the other day. Uh, and it's alarming to the old international order because the Oslo Accords are sacred texts to the old school diplomats in Washington, Europe and London. And if you throw them out, where do you begin? Well, we might be coming back to your one state solution, Patrick. But no doubt uh, you'll have comments on that. But interestingly, Biden recalled a conversation with Netanyahu referencing historical events like the carpet bombing of Germany and the dropping of the atom bomb. This, is, this again, is something the Israeli spokespeople and officials are doing, using it as one of their attack lines against criticism. What, what do you think about that? Well, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, this seems to be something that, um, you know, they're all, they're all kind of making this point. They're basically saying, why was it okay morally for you guys to flatten German cities in the Second World War, drop an atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but not for us to do similar in Gaza. Well, I mean, from my point of view, Saul, I think it's it's hard to know where to begin in refusing this argument. There's, as far as I can see, no plausible historical parallel between what's going on in Gaza and what was going on in the Second World War. I mean, the two sets of circumstances are very different. But another thing that Biden said, actually, I mean, he's been quite consistent about this, is that, you know, you, you meant to learn from your mistakes. No one is now looking back and saying that they were brilliant things to do. There is a sort of, I think you can make a moral argument in both cases, but it's something that's made very regretfully. And if one had one's time over, I think if you were leading the war effort in, um, in Britain, uh, you wouldn't have, have gone about waging the war in the way way we did. I mean, I didn't. We didn't really have much choice in terms of bombing Germany. If we were going to use our bombers, uh, there was only one thing they could really do. They couldn't be repurposed to suit the actual needs of the war. But we could go on about this at length, and we will be in our, um, our upcoming new series, Battleground Forty Four. But Biden made a more recent uh, parallel. Made a point about a more recent uh, historical point of comparison, that was, of course, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11. And he's always said this was uh, not necessarily the wise course of action, which I think history has certainly proved that to be the case. Yeah, I mean, just a quick point about Biden's comment about Afghanistan. I think I think he mentioned that going after the Taliban was a mistake. I mean, yes, totally right. And I, I said it at the time, 2006, 2007. It's on the record, Patrick. But of course, the other aim was to deal with al-Qaeda, which is different from the Taliban. And, and I think once they realized they'd uprooted most of al-Qaeda, probably driven it into the mountains and into the borderlands in Pakistan, then they should have withdrawn and stayed out of Afghanistan until such time as the al-Qaeda, if it had happened, they'd reestablish themselves there and then you go back in. But the idea you deal with the Taliban per se, who, yes, they'd hosted al-Qaeda, but weren't really a threat to the West, although we were told by you know, our governments for years uh, in defense of their continued occupation or operations in Afghanistan that it was necessary also to remove the Taliban. That was the big strategic mistake in my view. 
Yeah, and of course there is the irony that the uh, the Americans actually supported their uh, forebears, the anti-Soviet resistance. Mujahideen. Yeah, the Mujahideen, who are very much in the same tradition as the, as the Taliban. So there's all sorts of ironies there, which the Americans probably don't want to dwell on uh, too much at this moment. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions and addressing a really interesting point about what do Gazans really think about Hamas. Welcome back. Well, the first question is from Dan Keel, uh, and he asks, why do journalists and historians emphasize the deaths of women and children to such an extent? It seems, says Dan, the lives of perfectly innocent civilian men are somehow valued less. Men also experience pain, fear, and trauma, but their suffering is largely omitted from coverage. Do you think that's fair, Patrick? Well, I sort of see Dan's point, but the categorization uh, is done in this way really to emphasize that these are innocent lives that are being lost, as uh, certainly in the Gaza context, women and children are absolutely not going to be bearing arms. But I've been uh, thinking about that, you know, the sort of the, the way it's reported, you know, this, the numbers keep climbing. It's up to about 20,000 now dead Palestinians in Gaza. This is according, of course, to officials of the Hamas-run health Ministry, but I, I think there's not much dispute that that's that's a kind of somewhere of that uh, that order of magnitude. But the numbers themselves don't convey much, do they? Other than the scale, and it's the particular incidents that that bring it home. And it's funny how in this sort of sea of statistics, individual incidents uh, stick out. I'm thinking of the shooting dead of two women by an IDF sniper or snipers as the women were sheltering in the compound of the Church of the Holy Family in Gaza City. This is a Catholic church. Some people might be quite surprised to hear there is such a thing uh, in Gaza, given the uh, you know extreme fundamentalism of the Hamas rulers there. One woman was shot dead as she left the church to try to go to the toilet. A second was shot dead when she tried to go and help her. So we can all visualize an incident like that in a way that it's hard to do when you're told uh, a number of people were killed in an airstrike. Anyway, to get back to your point, yeah, obviously a lot of these uh, men are dying too who are not combatants. I don't think we shed any tears for the uh, Hamas fighters, but we certainly should give the dead their due, the innocent male Gazans who've been, been dying there. Well, talking of innocent males, Patrick, the most shocking images, or at least the most shocking story of the week by far for me was the killing also by an Israeli sniper and some of his comrades of three male hostages, that is three Israeli hostages who uh, had somehow managed to get away from their captors and were within yards of safety. They were waving a white flag and posed zero threat to the Israeli forces, and yet they were shot down and killed. I mean, it's an utterly shocking image. Now, hostages do get killed in rescue operations. They, they, they did, unfortunately, in the Entebbe operation. Three, I think, at least three were killed. And that, of course, is because when you go into a room full of hostages, you don't know who the terrorists are and who the hostages are. And the Israeli forces had a modus operandi. If anyone gets up, they're going to be shot. And they told the, the hostages as they entered the room, that is the anti-terrorist commandos, you know, stay down, stay down. Uh, and anyone who got up, they shot. Now, unfortunately, a couple of people panicked and were killed. But that's a totally different scenario to these three guys out in the open, clearly without weapons and with a white flag being shot down. I mean, I can't express how horrified I was 
Patrick, when I heard that story, because it did, I'm afraid, back up this sort of indiscriminate killing that's going on by the IDF at the time. And I've got a lot of time for their special forces having written about them. But these were ordinary IDF soldiers who killed these three hostages. And it's a really shocking event. Yeah, I, th- I think it um, demonstrates, or it demonstrated to the Israeli population, the Israeli public themselves, that the uh, IDF's rules of engagement, they don't actually take them very seriously. I mean, that's, that incident was indeed a real eye-opener, wasn't it? Particularly because the, I think the two of the hostages were, were shot dead pretty well straight away. Uh, and then a third was wounded and crawled into cover and was shouting out in Hebrew who he was, his identity, and was still killed. So, you know, as you say, a truly shocking event. Now, our old friend Ivares from Lithuania says, I'm feeling restless. I think um, Ivares probably means he's feeling a bit disturbed about an interview he saw a couple of days ago on Lithuanian television with one Andreas Sidlyayevas, who is a, a a Lithuanian who is acting or has been acting as a military instructor in Ukraine, and his report from what's going on and what he, what he observed there was pretty bleak. And his analysis, this is Andreas's analysis, is that the Russian military industrial complex is now rattling away. You don't have to make good machines, just a lot of them, in order to win battles. Uh, he says that. Russian soldiers' morale is high. They don't remember how and why the war started, but they are fighting for the fatherland now. Europe militarily is empty. They've got nothing to give. The F-16s, when are they going to come? In March, will they ever come? And that Ukraine doesn't have a second or third defense line. He makes the point again about Russian manpower. It doesn't matter how many are killed. They still have plenty more where they come from. So this is a pretty bleak picture. I think that's an interesting point about uh, Russian soldiers uh, mindset i think that's probably right that they they don't look back and think well how do we get into this all they know is that they're they're there they're fighting and they bought this line that this is a, a, a war like the second world war which is constantly referenced by putin uh, this is a, a fight for for russia's future so yeah i mean i'm afraid that uh, that does sound like a pretty grim picture but we're always trying to counterbalance that with a sunny <laughs> interpretation. But I think that is that's, is coming from someone who's actually been there, so it's worth putting into the balance, don't you think so? I would question where Andreas gets his, uh, his assessment of Russian military morale. I don't believe for a second it's high. Um, yes, there, there is this kind of stoical, we're here now, we'll, we'll keep fighting. Certainly there are there is evidence of that. But the idea that the morale is high and that they aren't actually being kept in line at the point of a gun, I, I find very, very hard to believe frankly. Of course, as the tide begins to turn a little, that is clear that the Ukrainian offensive in the summer didn't succeed. And yes, they're on the attack on the east bank of the Dnipro, but even there, things are very difficult. I suppose overall, the Russian soldiers probably getting a little bit more confident, but uh, high morale, I'm not buying that. I think you're absolutely right. So I I think that uh, the idea that they're actually looking forward to victory and all the rest of it, I think they're just... They bought the line, and they're sort of hanging on there in the in the great historical, you know, Russian military tradition. So I think you're right. Okay, France, uh, Martin Whittle in France uh, saying, still enjoying and loving your podcast. That's nice to hear, Martin. Thank you very much. And he's asking, it's a rather uh, detailed question, but he's uh, quoting a Haaretz, the uh, Israeli newspaper, very respected newspaper, figures for Israeli military dead. And... Um, 
you know, the big discrepancy he's pointing out is between those who have died since the invasion of Gaza, that's only 104, and 582 wounded, with the number of soldiers were killed in a single day on October the 7th, 329. Now this, you know, we don't actually hear much about what actually happened in purely military terms on on that day. We know we know about the massacre of the kibbutzniks and all the all the dreadful things that were done uh, to the c- civilians, the, the um, people attending the rave, etc. But what about these these figures of three hundred and twenty nine soldiers killed? What he's really asking: This looks like a sort of major military defeat. Uh, and what's what was actually going on there. I have seen nothing in the Western media about these attacks, have you? Well, it's true that there hasn't been much attention paid to the straightforward fighting, if you like, uh, on that day. But I think the attention is now turning to examine, as Martin, other the shock of the uh, initial, of the massacres and all of the horrors that were perpetrated on that day are, I won't say fading, but uh, it's moving away from the centre of people's attention and now actually looking at the IDF's performance on that day. And the first indications are that there's going to be a lot of trouble down the line about this because clearly uh, they were caught on the hop. Um, there's a story that they not only that, when they actually went to defend the uh, the kibbutzim uh, near the Gaza border, you know, their, their performance again was kind of um, very underwhelming. And in one case, they were actually firing on a house where they knew there were hostages being held. But the first sort of analysis is that the Hamas success was um, partly due, it has to be said, to their own skill in the breaching the, the barrier between Gaza and Israel. But also there's a feeling that they, um, the military reaction was very, very slow, partly at least because they were placing too much reliance on technological defences, i.e. sensors and things like this. And so when uh, Hamas was able to actually overcome some of those, I think by bombing communications towers and things like that with unmanned drones, they were then kind of pretty much blindsided and therefore all that much slower to react. And that's certainly one area that we're looking at. But I think we can look forward to seeing lots more kind of investigation and reportage from the Israeli press, which is newspapers like Haaretz are very good at this sort of thing. So I think this is going to be another problem for Netanyahu and his government in the weeks and months ahead. Really fascinating message from Tom Porter. He's a British expat journalist, former Bloomberg journalist who lives in Maine, the USA. And his message is headed unheard voices from Gaza. This is more a comment than a question, writes Tom. I'm wondering if you've heard of the work of the nonprofit, the Center for Peace Communications, which works to amplify the voices of Gazans. If not, I would strongly encourage you to listen to this segment. He gives the link to the segment. If you go to the Center for Peace Communications, you're going to find this segment. And it aired on public radio in the US recently, which injects a welcome dose of nuance into the narrative. It raises the issue, which you don't tend to hear in most coverage, of how many Gazans are blaming Hamas for what is happening to them. They're not saying this justifies Israelis' murderous bombardment of their community, but they see the blame as being more with Hamas, which they say does not have their best interests at heart. Well, I had a quick listen to this, and it is utterly fascinating because after doing a series of interviews with a large number of Gazans, and this is since the October 7th attack, so uh, in the immediate weeks after that, but also since the bombardment began, 
really fascinating details have, have come out of Gaza about what Gazans are really thinking. Now, the first point to make is that a recent poll within Gaza discovered that more than 70% of Gazans want to see the back of Hamas and replaced with the Palestinian Authority. They feel, same sort of figures, over 70%, that Hamas is corrupt. And here's the really interesting one, that Hamas is to blame for this war, though, as Tom's already mentioned, uh, this doesn't justify Israel's brutal response. But even more interesting, it goes into it goes into the sort of detail even about what Gazans think about the protests in the West against Israel's uh, reaction. They feel this is far too much uh, perceived or, or in actuality in support of Hamas uh, and that what these people really should be doing is demonstrating against Hamas, which a number of incredibly brave people within Gaza have done in recent years, including even this summer, Patrick, uh, when more than a thousand demonstrated, and yet there was nothing about it in the Western press. So some of these ordinary, very brave Gazans are saying, what on earth is going on? Don't people realize that this uh, this murderous group that have taken control, we really need to see the back of them? And last important point, they are terrified of a ceasefire that leaves Hamas in place. So we need to be very careful about calling in the West for a ceasefire that is going to be some kind of deal between Israel and Hamas that leaves Hamas in control. Most people, of course, can't express these fears openly because of the uh, danger of retribution from Hamas. So absolutely fascinating, Patrick, and and a real nuance, as Tom says, on what's really happening there. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, that we've got to keep the two things separate. I mean, of course, a ceasefire uh, is, in my view, absolutely vital, absolutely essential. And I don't think anyone who's uh, under Israeli bombardment now is going to say, oh, please carry on because we want to get rid of Hamas too. I mean, the first thing you want to do is stay alive. And also on the protest point, I don't think that um, people protesting are protesting in favour of Hamas. They're protesting against the Israeli occupation and, and what's going on there now. So, you know, people tend to read into into the protesters' actions uh, their own interpretation of what they're doing, rather than just uh, asking them what it is they're actually protesting about. I don't think anyone wants uh, Hamas in place. Having said that, on a rather negative note, I don't think the Palestinian Authority uh, is going to be a great deal better necessarily for the long-term security and prosperity of of people living in Gaza. On the corruption point in particular, they're pretty corrupt themselves. So, But what they won't do, of course, is um, provoke a war with Israel, which can only have, have one outcome. So in that respect, there would be an improvement, but I, I think uh, you know we go back to your one-state solution. I think we, the whole thing needs to be rethought. Just on one point about uh, Tom. Tom says I have actually met uh, Pat Bishop, that's me, a couple of times, including one boozy evening with him and Harvey Morris in Jerusalem in <laughs> 2000. I think I remember that. I think I remember that evening. Tom. I said I remember meeting you, and uh, he's probably more familiar with my brother. Mark Porter and Father Bob Porter, who died sadly a few years ago, also Fleet Street journalists in their day. And I would say Fleet Street legends. Mark Porter, great guy. Bob Porter was a terrific, terrific character, veteran of the. Uh, of the he was a labour. He was an industrial correspondent who, um, back in the day, were very, very important in a newspaper's life because uh, this was the era of sort of constant strikes. Uh, the union bosses were household names, and Bob Porter was. Um, one of the great industrial uh, reporters of the day who could sit down and uh, 
have a few beers with you know a union leader one day and then uh, with with a government minister the next and yeah ter- terrific character very nice to be reminded of them thanks very much tom now atley perkins writes once again some praise you've got a fan here as well uh, in atley uh, atley writes i've also recently finished operation thunderbolt which was a brilliant read so there's a, there's a good uh, christmas present uh, suggestion there straight away i'd highly recommend it to anyone says atley anyway he says Though I doubt he'll be taken alive, I was wondering which side you think would benefit most from an Eichmann-style trial of Yahya Sinwar, the uh, Hamas leader. It seems like it would give Israel an opportunity to bring more awareness to the utter brutality of the attack, as Eichmann's trial did for the Holocaust. However, equally, Hamas would have the opportunity to lay bare Palestinian grievances against the Israelis for the past 75 years. Well, that's an interesting idea isn't it don't you think Saul I mean I think he's right I mean it's uh, it depends on the um, on the performer but these uh, these trials do have a way of actually kind of swinging back on the accuser I'm thinking of the of Petan's attempt to put leaders of the Third Republic on trial in a town called Riom this was uh, during the German occupation the Vichy government decided that they were trying to sort of clear the historical air by putting a number of the uh, Third Republic leaders on trial for basically for treason. They're saying, you got us into this war. We were unprepared for the war. That's why we're now in this humiliating situation. But unfortunately, the whole thing completely backfired because the um, the very eloquent defendants actually managed to switch the whole thing around and say, uh, no, it was you, uh, the, arm, the army, Petain being the kind of you know, quintessence of the French army, uh, who are responsible for all sorts of reasons. So in the end, they the, the, the trial just fizzled out and it was a massive sort of PR disaster, if you like, for Vichy. Yeah, well, if you continue the analogy, uh, or, or at least the Vichy connection, Petain himself, of course, Patrick, was put on trial at the end of the Second World War in a sort of attempt, I suppose, to sort of uh, cauterize the, you know, the, the wound that Vichy and its collaboration with Germany was supposed to represent. And of course, in many ways, it made things worse. But I think the broader point here and the point that Atlee is asking is that, you know, will the perpetrator of this sort of extremism, in this case, Yahya Simwa, the leader of Hamas, uh, you know, actually be able to hide who he really is and what he believes and what his his murderous organization thinks. And I think it is very difficult to. Same thing with Petain. He tried to defend himself, but he didn't sound terribly convincing. Of course, he drew in a lot of other people who had also supported the Vichy regime. And of course, there was a lot of bad feeling as to who was responsible and to what extent they were responsible. And I know this is something uh, that's of great interest to you, Patrick, having just written your book about the liberation of Paris in 44, when the, of course, the, you know, the, the cards really began to collapse for those who had supported Germany in the Second World War, or at least done deals with them so that so that France could keep operating in some kind of level of autonomy. Uh, just to go back to Sinwar for a second, as I say, I think it'll be very difficult for him to hide the ideology and and the you know the pathology of a, of an organisation like Hamas. And I think it wouldn't actually be a bad thing, but of course it is going to require him to be taken alive, and I suspect that's pretty unlikely if indeed they do manage to corner him at any point. Yeah, on the subject of Petain's trial, this uh, brilliant book has just been written by Julian Jackson, who is the master, really, of uh, among British historians of, of French 20th century history. So that's another one to think of for Christmas. Just wondering about Atlee's name. I've never come across that name before. Perhaps you're 
father or grandfather was a, a fan of dear old Clem. Um, but yeah, very anyway, good to hear from you, Atlee. Uh, just before we go, a couple of things I wanted to flag up. One is, you know, it's Christmas time of giving. So a friend of mine passed on this request from very distinguished old gentleman, now 100 years old. Oh, sorry, no, he's just coming up to 100. He's going to be 100 on January the 5th, 2024. Now, this is a gentleman called Jack Burton. He was born in North London in 1924, big Spurs supporter. Uh, when World War II broke out, uh, he was too young to join up, but as uh, soon as he was able, the 5th of January 1942, he joined the RAF. He wanted to be a pilot like most people do, but he was trained as a navigator, deployed to a sea squadron of coastal command. He trained in Canada and the UK and then served in the Bahamas, Ceylon and Singapore, arriving in Singapore just before VJ Day. Uh, now, he flew in Liberators, B-25 Mitchells, and was immensely uh, proud, is immensely proud still of his World War II RAF service, still quotes his name, rank and number. Now, after a long career in the furniture business, became a magistrate later in life, Jack retired, but he became severely sight impaired 14 years ago, and he's now registered blind. Now, he was introduced to blind veterans who've continued to give him great support from then until today. Uh, and taught him that, um, you know, even with his handicap, there is still much to be got out of life. Now, he's 100 on, as I say, on January the 5th, 2024. And rather than presents, he and his wife, Anne, are trying to raise money to give back to blind veterans. Now, this is a, a cause obviously very dear to his heart. And if anyone is feeling generous, Jack would be very grateful if you would go to, go to his Just Giving page, which is called Jack Burton's 100th Raising Money for Blind Veterans. So I'll repeat that. Jack Burton's 100th Raising Money for Blind Veterans. And we'll see if we can put the uh, Just Giving page up on the site. The next thing to remember is just a further heads up that the Battleground 44 series will be launching early in the new year. Now, this is when we're taking listeners through all the great events of 1944, looking at them, analysing them, probably have some some uh, guests on as well to talk about them. Uh, and so we'll be not following it strictly chronologically, but we'll be looking at the, initially at the, the year itself and then taking you through all the great battles, all the great turning points in, in that most significant year of the Second World War. Do remember and do join us for that. That's it for nearly at the end of the year. Now, Merry Christmas to all our listeners from me. And also from me. Goodbye. 